We'll hear argument next in 93-263, Matt T. Kekkonen versus the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. and may it please the court. This case raises the issue of the scope of a federal court's power to enforce a settlement agreement reached in a case before it. Specifically, uh, the question is whether the district court properly invoked its inherent power in enforcing the settlement agreement, in this case, uh, where the action was no longer pending, having been dismissed uh, months of previous uh, where the action was not incorporated or made a part of any uh, court order or otherwise given judicial... You, you said the action wasn't incorporated. What you mean is the agreement, don't you? Yeah, excuse me. Uh, and it was, not a written, it was not a written agreement? That's correct. Uh, this was in... Uh, 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 let me turn to the facts because I think they're important in this case. Uh, this originally was a, a case filed in state court. It was removed on diversity grounds on account of the respondent's New York uh, citizenship raised only state law claims. Uh, Three days into the trial of this matter, the parties reached a settlement, uh, which at the insistence of the respondent was not converted uh, to a formal settlement agreement. Approximately five weeks later, the case was dismissed unconditionally under uh, 41A1, and uh, the parties went their separate ways. only uh, four or five months after that to uh, come to a major disagreement over the terms of the settlement and uh, who was breaching uh, what terms. The respondent sought uh, its remedy back before the federal court and the petitioner sought his remedy uh, before the state court. Uh, But you're correct, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, there was no written settlement agreement. This was an oral agreement. and uh, never incorporated into an order, never given judicial sanction uh, to be made in order uh, of the court. Was it dictated into the record some way? It was summarized by by one of the counsel in chambers in front of the district court judge who had taken, uh, as many judges do, an active role in encouraging uh, the settlement. Uh, But it was never, uh, except for that recitation, the the summarization in chambers never made a part uh, of the... uh, uh, record or otherwise uh, incorporated into an order of the court. We have um, uh, proposed, as have the uh, ten states who filed an amicus brief, a, a, a rule of practice, as it were, a, a line where uh, we suggest uh, the constitutional concerns of the limited jurisdiction of federal courts are met, and that also serves an important function as a rule of practice. Uh, well, do you argue uh, that uh, application of the federal rules themselves means 
if you just follow the rules, that there is no right to come in later for enforcement. Yes, Justice O'Connor. I, I don't think the federal rules confer jurisdiction in this case, uh, with the single exception, uh, and it really doesn't confer jurisdiction, but Rule 60 would allow, uh, under the proper circumstances and a showing that we believe... That wasn't resorted to. It was not resorted to here. So do you take the position that uh, if you just follow the rules, the court had no authority to enforce this judgment? Yes, then, well, your, if, you, if that were the case, we wouldn't reach any constitutional question. The, the, only, the, the constitutional question arises from the district court deciding to exercise its inherent jurisdiction to enforce the settlement. Uh, well, but we can solve it by just saying the rules don't allow it. That's correct. Well, rules, strictly speaking, I suppose, can't confer jurisdiction. Uh, it, it's statutes uh, that, that, that confer jurisdiction. A rule could implement a, a statute. And what, what you're saying here, I suppose, is that there's no independent basis for federal jurisdiction in the judici judicial code. Exactly. Are you not also saying that there, is no there would be no jurisdictional problem if a Rule 60 motion had been filed here? And the other side had been had asked to be relieved uh, from the burden of the judgment. If, if either party contesting the terms had, had made a motion that was granted under the standards of Rule 60, the, the, the dismissal could have been vacated and the case could have been restored to the docket. All right. Now, if the case had been restored to the docket, would you then take the position uh, that the court could not consider your settlement and that the only thing the court could do would be to litigate the case? Yes. Uh, and that being on a jurisdictional basis or on the, on the uh, text of the rules? Uh, both, both on the text of the rules but also on a practical basis. In most settlements reached, the, the dismissal of the action is obviously one of the major elements of consideration. If you were unfolding the settlement for some fraud in its procurement or other reason and can convince a court that to let it stand and not vacate it would perpetrate some extreme hardship or great injustice to fall under Rule 60. And I want to, Rule 60, I don't believe, is available for, for every breach of a settlement agreement that, that may occur. I think it, it, its history, its usage, its application uh, has shown it to be a much more of a reserve. Well, would it be available here? I don't believe so. Uh, the, under the facts, uh, e even that the district court found of, of the breach, of the alleged breach of the settlement agreement, uh, it, had they made the motion... What more would you have needed? Is, uh, are there any set of facts that you can imagine in which Rule 60 could have been invoked here properly? Certainly. I, I think there could be uh, cases where either there was a, uh, a clear fraud in, in the, the procurement of the settlement, or perhaps a changed circumstance. For, for example, something that has happened in this case is a change in state law that makes one of the terms of the settlement. Uh, uh, a mere breach of settlement would never be sufficient under Rule 60. I don't think... I, I guess the circumstances of the parties could be such, and that would be the only way to avoid great hardship, but I think generally a simple breach of a settlement agreement would not qualify for a Rule 60 set-aside. Jenks, um, I'm, I'm not sure I understand how you say the constitutional question can be avoided. It seems to me if neither the rules nor the statute 
provide for this kind of jurisdiction, uh, the argument is still going to be made, and is made, by your, your adversary here, that it doesn't have to be in the statute or in the rules, that a court has it by virtue of the Constitution, automatically. There is an inherent uh, authority under the Constitution. Isn't, isn't that question in this case, no matter what, oh, what we say about the, the question of the scope of inherent jurisdiction here is this case, because I think uh, we are prepared to concede that, that there is such a thing as inherent jurisdiction, and, and in some situations it may apply to the enforcement of settlement agreements. In fact, that is exactly why we've adopted and suggested to the court the rule of practice, because if you take a settlement agreement and incorporate it into an order, you give it judicial sanction, you can access one of the, the bedrock principles of inherent jurisdiction where the exercise of the inherent power is indispensable, is essential to the performance of the, the, the power formally granted. But, but we have to consider that question, don't we, whether the inherent power under the Constitution covers this? Absolutely, absolutely. and I apologize if I indicated we didn't. What is that inherent power? Again? Inherent power to do what? Judges in here. What, what are we talking about? In, in this case, in the way we would view um, a, a proper uh, scope of inherent jurisdiction, it would be the, the power to vindicate and enforce the court's own orders. Uh, the, the only order that, that's, that's outstanding here is an order dismissing the case. That's right. Well, that's the only order we have. That's right, and that's why we the believe... The inherent power to enforce an order of dismissal is what we're talking about. I think the excuse me, Justice Stewart. I think the court has the power to vacate upon a proper application under Rule 60 the order of dismissal. I think you just you suggested earlier we're not talking about vacating a judgment and going forward with the preceding lawsuit. They are rather seeking to enforce a separate agreement that resulted in dismissal of the lawsuit, and they are suing for uh, enforcement of that agreement. That is quite a different lawsuit. That's correct. I'm still, I still don't quite understand the concept of inherent jurisdiction to enforce the court's order to dismiss. I, I, maybe you misunderstood. Well, that's not you. You're arguing the other side. I'm not no. quite sure of the scope of your concession. I, no, no, Justice Stewart, I, I apologize. Let me, the, the issue, uh, I was talking about our proposed rule that, that tried to access a, a well-established principle for the exercise of inherent jurisdiction that would anchor this enforcement mechanism constitutionally and in a way that's supported by existing authority. It's really in some ways the, the counterpart to this court's uh, addressing the discipline or sanction side in Chambers, um, in the Chambers decision, um, where uh, the need to uh, access or, or um, discharge a disciplinary function is essential or viewed as essential to the court's maintenance of the order of its proceedings and the conduct of its business, I think much the same thing can be said about the inherent power necessary to enforce and vindicate orders, orders that have been given judicial sanction by the court. Well, suppose in this case uh, there had been a motion to uh, reopen the judgment under Rule 60. Um, and the court then had said there are problems with this settlement agreement. And so I am now going to enter a new judgment which incorporates the settlement agreement. And I'm going to enforce the settlement agreement if I have to. Would that have been an appropriate method of proceeding? And could the judge then have enforced the settlement agreement? I don't believe so, Justice Kennedy. Uh, the, 
as I understand. Why, if he could have done that in the first instance? I think that the remedy provided by, by Rule 60 uh, to uh, unwind a, a, an order uh, or set aside an order or judgment of the court uh, is, is premised on restoring the parties to the position they were before they gave up, in this case, the, the, the dismissals uh, that they reached in connection with the settlement. Different issues, it would go back on the calendar in our position and should be tried uh, and resolved. The issues are different. Well, I just want to make, get one thing clear. Uh, do you concede, or, or do you not, that if the judge had said when he heard the settlement agreement, I, I am uh, very interested in, in making sure that this settlement agreement is honored, I therefore put the settlement agreement into the judgment. I make it a part of the judgment. Um, could he have done that, and he could, could have he enforced it under those premises? He could have incorporated with the party's consent. This was still a voluntary private settlement agreement. Uh, I think uh, had they agreed that they wanted to retain federal court oversight and jurisdiction, over the enforcement of this settlement, that would have been exactly the course to take and what we're suggesting uh, uh, should be the rule where the parties decide to use the district court's continued jurisdiction uh, as a means of enforcement. They also could have looked... We're talking about the constitutional limitations on jurisdiction. Why why does that depend on on the consent of both parties? I I believe I understood you to ask if... Could the court simply, on its own, sui sponte, take the parties' agreement, regardless of their consent, and incorporate it in the judgment of the court? Well, suppose he said, I'm not going to dismiss this suit unless it's incorporated in the judgment. Otherwise, I'm going to... Fine. I mean, it seems to me that puts it directly to the parties to decide in their negotiation whether uh, that's the way they wanted to go, or whether they wanted to proceed with the trial and have a judgment. Mr. French, doesn't that raise still another question? Uh, pursuant to such an understanding with the judgment incorporated in, I mean, the, with the terms of the settlement agreement incorporated in the judgment, it seems to me that the, the judgment could do one of two things. One, it could say, as injunctions often do, the court retains jurisdiction for the purposes of enforcement. Or alternatively, it could just put it in there, say nothing, and dismiss the case. Now, if the case is dismissed with just the terms of the agreement printed in the judgment, would the, would the court have jurisdiction or not? With a simple statement expressly retaining jurisdiction? No, without such a statement. If it retains jurisdiction expressly, of course, it's easy, and like any. And most, most decrees contain such a recital. But my question is, supposing there's no such recital in the judgment, it's just a copy of what the parties agreed to, and then a judgment saying, judgment is dismissed, the case is dismissed, and the parties shall go hence without day. This is a dismissal with prejudice, and just a recital of the basis of the settlement. If, if the basis of the settlement was recited in the judgment, uh, I think there would be... And the be, case is dismissed. And the case was... And four months later, one of the parties comes in and said, they're not abiding by the settlement. What can the judge do? Does he have jurisdiction just because he put if, some words in the, the basis? Well, I, I, one of the hopes is to trigger the existing rules and remedies. For example, in Rule 65D... There's requirements about the, the precision and the detail that must be given in an injunctive order, and most of the, the terms of this settlement would fall under that. They were essentially injunctive. You shall not communicate or you shall return files. Um, I, the, the hope, or, or one of the, the notions by incorporating it in some order, is to require 
or have the existing rules apply regarding that have been well worked out, including the specificity of the order. I understand all that, and I understand your your difficulty in answering. But do you have a position on the hypothetical I've given you as to whether the court would have jurisdiction if the judgment recited the terms of a settlement and then dismissed the case without an express retention of jurisdiction for purposes of interpreting or const- or enforcing the the uh, decree? Um, my position would be that, that the existence of the judgment could confer jurisdiction. Uh, there may be, depending on the detail, enforceability problems in terms of the rest of it, but there would be jurisdiction if, if the judgment was in fact entered and given judicial sanction. I'm, I'm having a similar difficulty, I guess, and I, I'd like to go back to your answer to Justice Kennedy's questions, which I don't think I understood. Um, is, I, I think you said that uh, if we assume the moment after the Rule 60 mo- uh, uh, motion is granted, the, the prior judgment, silent as to any settlement and so on, uh, silent with respect, in fact, to anything except the dismissal, uh, has been vacated. I think you said that if the parties then said, in effect, uh, look, Judge, we're having trouble uh, uh, sort of administering our settlement, uh, and we would like to put that on the record and make that a a part of the judgment, there would be no jurisdictional problem in your view. Is that right? If the court... It's it's done by consent. If if the court... I don't think parties can privately necessarily contract for jurisdiction, but upon judicial scrutiny and his entry, that would be done. There would be no jurisdictional problem. I don't believe there'd be a jurisdictional problem. Why then is there a jurisdictional problem when they don't consent to that? And one party simply says, we had a settlement. I want to prove to you what the settlement was. I want you then to embody that settlement uh, in a judgment or at least enforce it now. As you said, they can't confer subject matter jurisdiction by agreement. Why do they have jurisdiction in the first case and not in the second case? Why does the court have jurisdiction in the first case and not in the second case? The, the, the jurisdiction, uh, as I understand your hypothetical, Justice Souter, to enforce the settlement agreement after vacating the dismissal under a Rule 60 uh, motion, um, I believe it runs into the difficulty that the breach of a settlement agreement, the breach of a private contract, is going to be fundamentally different, a different proof different uh, oh, but in, if, if I may interrupt you. In, in each case, what you've got is what you describe here at this point as a private contract. In, in, each, in, in each of the alternatives, the parties have not previously brought it before the court and had it embodied in any order of the court. In the one case, they, in effect, are saying, we'll find it easier to live with this if you make it part of your judgment. In the other case, one of the parties says, no, I, I deny that we had a settlement agreement of the sort that is claimed here. Uh, in the one case, the parties, in effect, consent to its embodiment uh, in an order. In the second case, one of the party refuses. One of the parties refuses, and therefore, if it's going to be embodied in the order, uh, or indeed if it's going to be uh, enforced by the court, it's going to have to be proven. In each case, what you've got at that moment is what you describe as a private contract. Why does the court have jurisdiction, in your view? to accede to the party's request in the first case and not have subject matter jurisdiction uh, in the second case. Doesn't it either have it in both or in neither? I don't believe so. Um, The the choice of the parties in that situation would be either to go back to the drawing boards, vacate the dismissal on 60B, or follow their remedies for breach of the contract. Are you saying, in effect, it would be a new settlement agreement? What you're saying is the 60B 
can reopen the proceeding. Then, if there is to be restoration of the original settlement agreement, it's because the parties again say to the judge, we have, this agreement was opened, but now we wish to present the very same agreement and come to the same place again. It wouldn't be an, uh, vacating the judgment under 60B and then having the settlement agreement in place. Is that the distinction? I, I believe that's correct. Is well, that Mr. Jenks, uh, you've been asked several questions where it's been assumed that there is a proper motion to vacate under 60B, but I think you said earlier that in this case you didn't think there was any basis on which 60B could be used. What would have been the basis on the facts of this case for a motion, Rule, 30, Rule 60B motion? I take it you don't think one should have been granted. Not as I understand the evidence that was presented on the, on the motion to enforce, though the motion to enforce would have different, a different showing. It's a different test. Well, a motion to enforce wouldn't be brought under Rule 60B. No, I know. I'm only saying in terms of, of the respondent's position about what they view as they chose not to file a Rule 60B motion. Right, but there have been a number of hypothetical questions put to you. Well, let me, let me give you the best example. There was a change in the, the insurance code of the state of California. It actually made a misdemeanor uh, not to disclose certain information that you, as an insurance agent you receive from a client. Um, that communication is prohibited as a term of the settlement here. You have a change in the law that affects uh, the, the, one of the important terms of the settlement. That's peculiar to this case, though. Uh, what, uh, the, the general circumstance of a, of a settlement agreement not itself incorporated in the record, uh, breached several months later, the court simply orders a dismissal. Is there any basis for a Rule 60B motion on the part of a party that wishes to have the federal court enforce the settlement agreement? I don't believe that on a, on a routine breach situation there is. I, I think that the interest and finality of encouraging parties to reach a final enforceable good settle, settlement alone isn't a good, good enough goal. We need effective settlements that will clear the court's dockets. Here we had a situation where the parties by choice never converted this agreement to a writing, didn't want it incorporated in any order of the court. They have their remedies, either to come in on 60B or to enforce privately. What or, you're saying is that there's no evidence of fraud, mistake, or the sort of other things that uh, 60B is used for. Or, or the, the, the degree of injustice or hardship that it conventionally is reserved for either, I think, in, in the case law. It's not an automatic, I don't read it, and I don't believe it's been interpreted as an automatic escape valve whenever you get a few months down the road uh, and things aren't, aren't perfect. The idea is to encourage How parties. any other uh, CB6, the casserole, and the judge saying, well, it sounds like a pretty good 60B motion to me. I was listening to these two people debate what their settlement was going to be, and they made certain representations, and one of them is trying to get out of it. So I think that's it, um, the 60B6. Casserole. Justifies relief to tell me one thing and then go do another thing. It, 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 in terms of a private agreement, you, you could have a conclusion under 60b6 uh, that, that it should be set aside. But in addition to that, I think you need to show, for, for one reason or another, the parties here chose not to bring that motion. They chose to enforce the respondent, tried, tried by a motion to enforce before the district court judge. Petitioner chose to enforce in state court um, the agreement, um, but but I think conceivably you could have a 60b6 motion 
that would offer relief on some kinds of breach cases. I just don't think that on a absent some fraud and absent some hardship, it, it is often going to make the cut. It's still your position that in such a motion, the, the relief to be granted would be to reinstate the lawsuit and go forward with that rather than enforcing a settlement. That's correct, Justice Stevens. But let me just test out one more proposition with you because there are two undercurrents to your argument. Uh, you seem to... Uh, resist the idea that the judge of his own motion could incorporate a settlement agreement. Suppose the jury is sent home from the, for the afternoon mid-trial because the parties think they can settle. And they do. And they tell the judge they have a settlement. Everyone agrees. The judge said, fine, we'll bring the jury back tomorrow morning and we'll uh, make an appropriate order to dismiss this suit. Uh, the next morning, the parties, one of the parties said, I've changed my mind, I'm not going to settle. The judge said, don't do that to me. You've made an agreement. You've got to stick by it. I'm incorporating that settlement in, and that, and that contract settlement in the judgment, whether you like it or not. Can the judge do that? I don't believe so. The only justification for that would be if it was viewed in terms of the statements to the court. I, I would access the only way that happened would be in effect, as a form of, of, of sanction. If representations were made to the court, the court was misled, act in reliance on it, it seems to me you may, might be able to justify then imposing the agreement on the parties. The, 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 one of the keys here is to try to encourage the private settlement mechanism that, that, that generally is working, in many cases are settling. I think it's one of the things where instead of, of having a, a sort of a roving jurisdiction to, to mop up the loose ends and the, the odd bits, it, it is a case where maybe form is substance. That is, it's important to, to let the private process do its best, to give incentives in effect to address dispute resolution, liquidated damages, other mechanisms to enforce their own contract, and is one of those options to decide whether, by converting it to a court order, to avail themselves of the, the assistance of the federal court. I think we do that by drawing a, a bright line uh, that indicates what side of the line settling parties will fall. They will know when they reach their agreement if they will fall on the side of, of continued federal jurisdiction or not. Uh, if I may, Mr. Sure I understand. Your answer to Justice Kennedy is based on subject matter jurisdictional grounds. Yes. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, if I may, I'd uh, like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. James. Uh, Mr. Morris, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We would submit that the rule that Petitioner seeks in this case is a rule that, after three days of trial, and with the apparent view that they were going to face an eminent loss in that trial, they initiate settlement discussions. The district court judge becomes incredibly involved in those discussions, in the clarification and the refinement of that settlement agreement. Upon agreement to a settlement at the initiation of Petitioner, within days of the settlement agreement, the Petitioner breaches that agreement. Petitioner's rule here would leave the federal court and the federal court processes powerless to deal with that situation and powerless as well to provide relief to the aggrieved oh, party. The court could say, I will not dismiss unless you agree to embody this uh, settlement agreement in my order. He has, he has that whip hand. And, well, and your, your adversary will acknowledge that if that's done, there, there, there would be to enforce. That's true, Justice Scalia. However, in this case, the breach, though close in time, was not before the court 
when the uh, stipulation and order for dismissal was signed by Judge Coyle. If the court wanted to retain jurisdiction over such a breach, uh, for, a, for a breach in the future, it could have done just what Justice Scalia suggests, incorporate the agreement and say we retain jurisdiction. You wouldn't have any of this problem. Well, that may be right in another case, Your Honor, but we would submit that what, act, what actually happened in this case is, in fact, the constructive equivalent of just that. You asked the question earlier of whether this settlement agreement was written. It was not written in a separate document, but it is contained in writing in the transcript of the proceedings, every single word of it, before the district court judge, in which this agreement was not read by one party. It was a negotiation process by both parties, and in which I would also observe the petitioner himself, Mr. Kokanen, was also involved in the colloquy on the record with the judge, and in fact, Judge Coyle specifically explained several of the provisions to which Mr. Kokanen said, yes, that's a good statement, so I agree. I, I don't understand the petitioner to be challenging the fact that there was an agreement. So I'm saying that what appears in the record was not the agreement of the parties. I think what the petitioner is challenging is the authority of the court to enforce the agreement. Yes, that is correct. But we believe that on the facts of this case, on the facts of this case, that there was, in effect, an embodiment of what was going to be, what was agreed to by the parties as the settlement agreement. We have the constructive equivalent of the embodiment of the agreement in the order. Well, now, you see, we have the constructive equivalent of the embodiment of the agreement in the order. I mean, what does that mean when it's stripped of the adjectives? When stripped of the too many adjectives, Your Honor. I think what that means is this. Judge Coyle, on three separate occasions, made it clear to the parties that he envisioned, if there had to be any enforcement activity in this case, that it was coming back to him, not to the state court. He said, I want this clear. I want everyone to understand the agreement. And indeed, on three other occasions, as reflected in the transcript, he also indicated at various points he didn't think there was an agreement. And what you therefore have in this case is the enormous involvement. This is not a case of the parties simply going back to the court and saying, okay, Your Honor, we've reached agreement. We're going to tender to you a stipulation. Rather, the district court, part and parcel of that settlement, helped frame it and made sure that both he and the parties... But he didn't put it in his order. He just dismissed the case outright. That is correct. Do you suppose your opponent is correct, that there was nothing here to reopen, that there was nothing here to enforce, because all there was was a dismissal with prejudice? Do you think you could go back and say, well, alternately, please consider our case under Rule 60b-6 and reopen the judgment because you're not alleging fraud? What would be the reason that you could give if you were proceeding under 60b? Well, Your Honor, I think we would have available to us not only 60b-6 but 60b-3, because if it's not fraud, and it might be, it certainly, we would suggest, was a misrepresentation, because the record, I think, in what Judge Coyle found in the enforcement proceeding, that he had stubbornly and unjustifiably refused to comply and that he had blatantly breached the agreement. But that'll just get you the lawsuit. You don't want the lawsuit. You want the settlement. Well, Justice Scalia, I'm not sure. You want the lawsuit or the settlement. Justice Scalia, I'm not sure it gets us only the lawsuit, because I believe we would submit that once the case is properly back before the district court, the district court not only 
may reopen and put the lawsuit back on the calendar, we believe that the better view of the law is those cases which take the position that if the case is properly back on the docket, any order which could have been entered at a prior time is then appropriate. And the law among all the circuits, none have disagreed with this proposition, is in a case on the docket, a court may enforce a settlement agreement that is reached. And we believe that if this case was back before the court, and we believe, in fact, that our motion to enforce... That's a little strange. You're saying you can both rescind the agreement and sue for breach at the same time. Because in order to reinstate the case, you have to set aside the settlement and say it's no longer binding. And then you're going to say, yes, but it's binding when we want to enforce it. I I have some difficulty with that. Well, Your Honor, I think what we're saying is there's reason to bring the matter back and for the court to act, either under Rule 60 or under its ancillary jurisdiction, to give effect... The only way it can bring the matter back is to set aside the judgment and the settlement. You can't have it both ways. Well, we believe there's ancillary jurisdiction to enforce, Your Honor, so we would depart with you there. May I ask you this question? I understand your argument is that the transcript here is just as clear as if they had written out a stipulation and filed it in open court as part of the judgment, but nevertheless dismissed the lawsuit and did not retain jurisdiction. You're saying that's the equivalent of this case. How long, under your view of the law, does the judge retain the power to enforce the judgment? The short answer to that is there would be no express time. Ancillary jurisdiction, we believe, provides the basis for enforcement in this case, and the ancillary jurisdiction should be exercised in the sound discretion of the district court. So the time limit is just his sound discretion? The district court judge's sound discretion, informed by the facts of the case, and whether they choose at all, whether he or she chooses at all... I understand your position. Your position is it's whatever the judge thinks is equitable or appropriate in the particular case. Perhaps tested by appeal, but yes, Your Honor. The Court of Appeals didn't rely on ancillary jurisdiction in upholding the district court's authority, did it? Well, I think what it used the phrase, I believe, the inherent power, the decisions of the Ninth Circuit, and there are three decisions of the Ninth Circuit. I think if you read all three of those decisions of the Ninth Circuit, in Wilkinson, in Dauconet, and in our own case, that the concept here is that there is inherent or ancillary power to enforce in appropriate circumstances a settlement agreement. And you would say both of those are... one is the equivalent of the other, inherent power is the same as ancillary jurisdiction? Well, I don't know that there is an absolutely precise definition. If you read many cases, Mr. Chief Justice, and for purposes of how the courts frequently categorize this, the answer, I would say, is yes, although I understand there may be circumstances where they are different. I don't think that difference here, however, is material to whether or not Judge Coyle had the authority to enforce his prior order. I think there are many cases of this court under the ancillary jurisdiction principles, which is our primary ground upon which we believe enforcement here is appropriate. When you're using that term, are you referring... you're not referring to Rule 13 or Rule 14 or 1357, you're just saying ancillary jurisdiction, inherent jurisdiction. Correct, Justice. Not in the narrow, perhaps most frequently today encountered phrase, use of the phrase ancillary jurisdiction. That is absolutely correct. Well, you say that Judge Coyle had the authority to enforce his order. His only order was to dismiss the case. Well, we believe that what he did here, in effect, with the substantial proceedings in chambers and his participation, that we had, in effect, a much broader order than the narrow stipulation, which is all that is entered on the docket, the narrow stipulation in his order dismissing the case. 
But we, but we would take the view that in this case, and that we believe this case frankly presents somewhat unique facts, and that on these facts, we were entitled to have what Judge Coyle did and what the Ninth Circuit also found appropriate. We would also observe that, of course, when we brought the motion to enforce in this matter, we were proceeding in a circuit that said that's all you need to do. Well, surely there's a parole evidence rule of some sort with respect to orders and judgment. You say that it isn't in writing, but somehow it hovers around the, the written word. I, I don't know that we've ever said that, the, the, particularly in dealing with a jurisdictional matter, that you look not merely to what's written, but to all the circumstances that kind of led up to it. Well, it would be our, our position that, in fact, we essentially have the writing of the agreement here. The writing is the reporter's transcript. And contrary to the suggestion, both no, parties... No, nobody doubts. No one is claiming that there was no agreement here. Uh, the, the, the argument the other side makes is since there was no reservation of jurisdiction, uh, that it, it can't be enforced in federal court. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, but our view of that is on these facts there is ancillary jurisdiction. That going back to the earliest years of this country, the courts have on selected occasions used ancillary jurisdiction to see to it that prior judgments have not been misused, inequitably used. Ancillary to what? I mean, you can have jurisdiction ancillary to a case that's before you, but once this case has been dismissed without, without any reservation of continuing jurisdiction, there's nothing to be ancillary to. Well, the court has no longer has a case in front of it. Well, Justice Scalia, we would respectfully suggest that there are a number of instances, as cited in our brief, where this court has said that if there was once proper jurisdiction in the federal courts, there can be ancillary jurisdiction based on that original prior federal court jurisdiction. For example, what, what, what case do you have in mind? Well, the cases where, where there are coming a number of varieties, the cases where there were judgments entered, the cases went off the books, and where in, in, the, in one of the principal cases that we cite, the uh, Julian versus Central Trust, the court, in aid of its prior decree in a mortgage foreclosure situation, and when there was going to be a state court action that called into question the transfer of the property in that case, entered further orders. We have cases in a variety of circumstances where the court... has authority to to enforce its orders. But here there isn't anything other than a bare dismissal with prejudice. Well, we have attorney's fees cases, Justice Ginsburg, where the case is dismissed, but the court, after the dismissal, deals with the attorney's fees. We have contempt cases where the case is dismissed and the court deals with the contempt. We have those circumstances where the courts, quite clearly, after dismissal, have had to address various issues. Have you had, the, I'm, I'm, what is the contempt case you have? Where after a case is dismissed, the party is held in contempt for violating it? Well, the, the, the action that would be the basis occur, would have occurred, certainly, Justice Stevens, during the live period of the case before the court. But in, many, in some instances, at least, the addressing of the contempt and whether punishment is warranted and what punishment would be warranted may be done after the dismissal of the substantive case wherein the contempt was committed. And so, too, with attorney's fees issues. The substantive case may have gone away. But are there any cases in which action taken after the case is dismissed provides the basis for a contempt of court? I don't think there are, are there? In a contempt, I'm not aware of any contempt cases where an action of a contempt nature would be after the case was dismissed. May, may I ask you this question? Would it matter if the settlement agreement incorporated a term that could not have been granted by a, a, a provision the court could not have ordered as relief in the case. For example, say your client had settled and said, I'll move to San Francisco so I won't compete with you anymore. 
and then he doesn't move to San Francisco. Uh, and the judge normally could not have ordered him to move to San Francisco. He just under other Would that make any difference? Does it have to be? Does the settlement agreement have to be limited to matters that could have been ordered in the case? Well, if it would probably, I, I believe the answer would probably be it would have to be those matters which would be properly proper relief and proper relief. And in you the would case. argue in this case everything that was agreed to is something the judge could have ordered. Yes, absolutely. It's relatively simple. Really, there were only a couple provisions that he would turn back over to the guardian various files that he had improperly retained, and that he would not uh, act as a representative in seeking information on behalf of of continuing clients of his. Those were the only, really, the two essential provisions. He was to pay the guardian some money, and that was that was those were the essential terms ultimately agreed to after you'd the intervention. Too late now for 60b3, not for 60b6, but you would be too late. Wouldn't you? Because you didn't move for that originally. It may be, or it may not be. The reason I say may not be, under the normal reading of the rule, we have a one. We would have a one-year period to seek 60b3 relief. I do not know, however, for sure whether, because of the ensuing litigation and the California doctrines of equitable tolling, whether whether there may be an argument that the the continuing litigation in this matter provides a basis where the one-year period would have been considered to be tolled. That you could treat your original motion for enforcement as though it were a 60B3 motion. And, and we would suggest more than that, Justice Ginsburg, that in fact our original motion to enforce, appropriate under the Ninth Circuit law at the time, did all that a 60B3 motion could have done. It put the petitioner on notice that he had to defend, it told him what we believed the actions at issue were, and it told him what we were seeking in the case. Did you make any reference to Rule 60B in your motion? Uh, no, Your Honor, we did not. Then it would be a rather strange thing to treat it as a Rule 60B motion. Well, there are, there are cases cited in our brief and Professor Moore's treatise that say Rule 60 is to, be, is to be liberally construed, and there is some authority for treating it liberally. And we would suggest that it would not be so strange where every real function that 60B is intended to serve was met by our, by our action with the motion to enforce, which was the motion under the law of the circuit that was appropriate. Well, 60B is addressed to the discretion of the trial judge, is it not? Yes, Your Honor. And uh, a motion to enforce, I take it, would not be. If you have a right to have a settlement enforced, it isn't up to the trial judge to decide, well, I, I, I don't think I will enforce this, or I, perhaps I will enforce it. If we're proceeding under Rule 60, that's, I believe that would be correct. We are also saying as an alternative ground here that Judge Coyle, under the rubric of ancillary, or we've used the phrase also inherent jurisdiction, had authority to enforce. There, the discretion is... Has the district court's involvement in the case, has the utilization of the federal resources been such that it makes sense that the court, though having jurisdiction, should choose whether to entertain the enforcement or whether not entertain it? And so in the ancillary area, it is our view that the court, though having jurisdiction to enforce our motion, to, to entertain our motion, did not necessarily have to. And we would indeed submit that in the greater majority of cases, district court judges are likely probably not to. You can take the whole range of the kinds of circumstances where a settlement may have occurred, and you could say some of them will be right after a demand letter and a draft complaint. The chances of there being any reason why a district court would entertain a motion to enforce in that circumstance is virtually nil. We could have a midpoint 
where the issue has been joined in a case, where there's been Rule 16 conference held, where there's been some litigation of the case, where probably a district court judge would conclude no reason to get invested in the enforcement in that matter. Mr. Morris, can I give you an example that, based on many years ago that I bumped into many times in practice and see if you have you commented. I was involved in a lot of cases where an equitable relief was sought, which were settled at one time, either government antitrust cases, private antitrust cases, other cases. And routinely, those decrees contain a provision. The court retains jurisdiction for the purpose of interpreting and enforcing this decree. Are you telling me that, that in all of those settlements, that provision was really unnecessary? No, in a consent decree, you, I believe that that was... It's a classic settlement. That, well, it's, it's a consent decree, I think almost by virtue of its very nature, will have exactly the provision that you have, you have uh, described. I am suggesting to you that on the facts of this case, that we do not believe that that kind of language on these peculiar facts was warranted, was necessary here. But was it necessary in a government suit against a couple of newspapers or something like that? Why would they keep it in if it's, it's so obvious? Well, because it certainly is the safer procedure and it, it, it eliminates the possible position we have here. Yeah. No question, but what, if that language is there, we resolve the problem. It's just, I have to confess to you, a lot of li- lawyers thought it was necessary. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I was one of them, but well, you're I, telling me it wasn't, really. Well, I, I think the better prudent practice would be to do so. And certainly in a consent decree where there is probably a notion of a more uh, vigilant district court role in enforcing the terms of a consent decree. In this particular circumstance, though, as I say, I would suggest to you that the actions of the district court here are highly unusual in the way that the court became involved, in the way that the court expressly said that it was important to the district court judge to understand and to make sure that there was agreement. But you found yourself in this position that the other side in your judgment had not carried out the bargain. Did you find other cases in the district court and in the Ninth Circuit where, despite the failure to reserve jurisdiction, parties were able to enforce a settlement agreement that was not incorporated in the, in the judgment? Well, there are cases that we have cited in our brief where dismissals have been set aside and where settlement agreements that have been breached were enforced by the district courts. This is not a completely sui generis case in that sort. There is certainly no no precedent in this court that addresses this this particular case and clearly states that there is ancillary jurisdiction or or constructively uh, the compliance with Rule 60 in this particular circumstance. There's no precedent here. Would would you have had a cause of action in in state court as well? Or do you think this was your exclusive remedy? No, I do not believe it was our exclusive remedy. I believe we could have gone, that we could have gone to state court, but that would have been a stranger forum, whereas Judge Coyle had been so heavily involved in seeing this agreement come together, in making sure that he and the parties both understood it, and in telling the parties that if there was an enforcement action, he anticipated it would be before him. And the reason you would, you would not have access to the federal court for this enforcement proceeding, if it were de novo proceeding, is you, you no longer have diversity and amount in controversy. What is the lack? 
Well, we would not concede that we, we no longer have diversity jurisdiction. We believe we merit very well may. We're still, we're still citizens of different states, as far as we know, and we have uh, the value of the files that were not returned to us, and we have probably a certified claim. So I think we could probably, uh, with regard to, the alle to alleging $50,000 in damages, I believe that we could in good faith make that allegation in this case. So I believe that we would have diversity jurisdiction. So when your adversary says you have recourse to a state court for breach of contract suit, uh, you say that you could bring that as a diversity suit as well, that you meet the requirements of diversity. I, I believe that is correct, diversity. Justice Ginsburg. I believe that is correct. Obviously, we haven't yet had the occasion to test that fully, but that's, that is my belief at this time. Of course, the big difference, I suppose, is if you can go back the way you want to go back in, and maybe you should be allowed to, you're going to get it decided very promptly. If you've got to start all over with a new lawsuit, you may be three years before you get a decision. That's precisely the yeah. point that we make, and that's where we do think the important policies around settlement I come in here. Judge, what is it, Coyle? Coyle. Yeah. But with 60B, you would get him. I would assume that we could say that this was a related, yeah, I mean, that, well, first of all, it's 60B, even if we went in as an independent. opening the same judgment. Yes, even if we went in as an independent action, I think we could probably say that this was a related case and, and seek to have it placed before Judge Coyle. We may or may not succeed with that, but I think it would certainly be a claim that we could make. Of course, then he'd be a uh, party with access to evidentiary facts that are in dispute. He might have to recuse. Well, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, Justice Kennedy. I mean, he made it clear at the hearing in this case, though, that he was well aware of what the terms of the settlement were and that there had been a breach in this case. I mean, that's, that's evident on the record. I mean, there, there could not have been a clearer indication from Judge Coyle. Uh, so what we suggest here is that under ancillary jurisdiction, in these circumstances, we had a basis for enforcement. That, that's our, that is our initial belief, and we believe is a basis for why this court has jurisdiction. There was a question as to why this case was in court, is under, in court under 28 U.S.C. 1331. We, we had diversity, there was diversity jurisdiction. That's the basis for why the, why the case was there. If, however, the court believes that there has to be an express statement reserving jurisdiction, we believe that on the facts of this case, that there is sufficient indication in what went on in chambers, in what Judge Coyle said, and what he did, and the party's agreement to that. The parties agree. What if, uh, if I may interrupt you, what about the fact that he said, I don't want to see you back here? Well, that's, an that's a good question, Justice Souter, because when you first read that, uh, you, could, you could easily draw the opposite conclusion. You could go anyplace, but don't come back to my courtroom. I think, however, if you read the entire transcript of the proceeding before him wherein the settlement was agreed to, that what he makes it clear is that he envisioned that any enforcement action would be before him. At Joint Appendix uh, page 81, he said, I must find out what you people agreed to. And later on, Joint Appendix 81, he said, my concern is you all understood what you've agreed to, and for that reason, he brought up one practical matter, quoting, he could see that probably, and he didn't want to see that problem uh, come back, he wanted it resolved now. And one of our younger colleagues, perhaps a bit more brashly than, than we would have, at the end of this process, said to Judge Coyle, Judge, do you understand? And the judge's response at page 86 of the joint appendix was, oh, I understand. Then why didn't you ask him to amend his judgment? Because it failed to embody what, in, what he had intended. You're, you're giving us the legislative history of the judgment here. Why didn't you just put it in the judgment? Well, in retrospect, it clearly would have been better had we done so. In retrospect, but we believe that it's still capable of being enforced in this case. In, in, in any of your submissions to the court, did you claim that the judgment entered 
was in fact mistaken in in uh, in failing to uh, to embody the settlement. Absolutely not. Your all Honor. of your conversation, uh, the conversation on the record. No, Your Honor, we did not. We didn't believe that there was a mistake. We didn't anticipate that we would have the problem, but that problem did, in very short order, emerge. On March 5th, the settlement was reached in chambers on the record. Uh, in by April, by early April, uh, we had the dismissal order April 13th, and we had breach in April, and we were back with our motion to enforce. There's no long lapse of time here. One of the suggestions that's made is, well, you can have a long lapse of time. We were before Judge Coyle again with a motion filed on May 21st, and we were in hearing before him on June 29th, all these dates of 1992. So from the date of the agreement, March 5th, Till Judge Coyle held our hearing, it was March 5th to June 29th. That's the modest time frame that's involved here. There will be other cases where the time frame is grossly different and where the district court judge there will rightly choose not to exercise his or her discretion. But we don't believe that this is a case where that's a problem. I guess, I guess this means that a, that a district judge can't avoid uh, getting himself entangled in, in the future disputes of a settlement agreement, even, even, if, he, even if he wants to. I mean, it's sort of nice to know the district district judge if he thinks it's a pretty simple settlement that uh, that, that he can police to put it in his uh, in his uh, judgment order. But but uh, uh, you say even if he doesn't, uh, he is um, he is enmeshed uh, in, uh, in in whatever the parties have agreed to, and they can keep coming back and bothering him about it and saying you. That's not our contention, Justice Scalia. That in rare circumstances, the facts of the district court's involvement will justify. The district court judge he's making involved. the determination. He's involved in, in, in the settlement, which, which often happens. Now, your position is whenever the, the terms of the settlement are disclosed in court proceedings. That's your position. Isn't it? it doesn't matter whether the proceeding is in chambers or in the, in the judgment itself. But well, the I terms of the settlement are, they have to be set forth. In, I, because uh, we believe it's discretion, I believe it's going to take more, frankly, for the court to decide that it will exercise its discretion than just that it heard the terms. Justice Coyle has presided at the three-day trial. The petitioner comes in and says they want to talk settlement. Justice Coyle then makes sure that he and the parties through the negotiation process understand that. That is a relatively unusual amount of activity. This is discretionary jurisdiction. The court doesn't have to exercise that. That is correct. It's ancillary jurisdiction. Ancillary jurisdiction is discretionary. Just if it wants to. If it wants to. And we believe this is a case where... You could have said, I presided over dozens and dozens of settlements. I don't remember this one from any other. Go away. And you would have nothing to complain about. Nothing. We would not complain, Your Honor. We would not complain. And we believe, as I suggested, that the greater majority of cases, the district court judge is far more likely because they will not have invested the federal judicial resources so deeply in the case that they will say. Did you say there's a form of federal jurisdiction that the judge can just decide, I don't want to take the case? Restrained. Discretionary. What's well, discretionary, Your Honor? Discretionary jurisdiction. It's ancillary jurisdiction, and if one looks at the historical ancillary precedents, the issue is whether or not the court believes that there is a reason to step back in. Except that uh, maybe it's not ancillary. Yes, uh, ancillary jurisdiction, some of it is, is discretionary, but if you consider this inherent jurisdiction, I think it's a lot harder to run that argument. Thank you, Mr. Morris. Uh, Mr. Jenks, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just, just a couple of of points. Uh, I want to emphasize again uh, the, the point that came out in the questioning. The, the respondent has remedies here. The statutes haven't run, for example, to, to pursue a state action. There's an ongoing state action to enforce the settlement agreement brought by Mr. Kokanen. The, the respondent is appearing and participating in that case, and it's at issue. Um, 
our remedies here, they made a series of choices for whatever business purposes, confidentiality and the like, to not have this settlement reduced to a writing and not incorporated uh, in an order of judgment of the court. The dismissal uh, was expressly with prejudice. That was the stipulation of the, the parties. Um, and uh, I, I think here they have other remedies to pursue. They may have a 60B motion uh, if they can meet some of the time concerns that the Respondent's Counsel discussed with Justice Ginsburg. Uh, they are not without a remedy. They are not stranded here. And it's really a situation very much of their own making and choice and tactics. And I don't see that, that the district court... From, what, from your point of view, having made that concession, what is involved here other than a misnomer? You go back, you, you get rid of this proceeding. You go back to before Judge Paul with a 60B motion, which you will either, uh, you'll take some position on, no doubt, opposing. What, what is this accomplishing, then, other than to get the thing back where it was with a different label on it? I, I think there's a difference whether we choose, whether either of the parties chooses to go back on a 60B motion to reopen the previous proceedings or to enforce the settlement agreement. Um, counsel, the, the enforcement settlement agreement may be able to be in federal court. It's not directly. There, there's a state brief here that, that reads, makes it sound like a turf battle. It's really not that because some of these cases will, will still default to federal court. You, you, as I understand your argument, you say that, that he can go on 60B, but the consequence is not to enforce the settlement agreement. It's just to go back to reopening right, the whole case. To reopen the case. So, so it is a difference. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jenks. The case is submitted.